Welcome back to the 52nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including a deal that got through the omnibus bill that greatly favors retirement funds on Wall Street, and the benefits and the downsides. Then we're going to talk about private equity and asset management and how their outsized control over our economy poses a interesting way to view the future of America. Or maybe I'm just being cynical. And, of course, we'll have our international article. This one is talking about how Japan is slowly building up its military in response to threats from China and North Korea. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So in the last few podcasts, last few weeks or so, we, we've talked a lot, or at least I've talked a lot, and you've hopefully listened, about antitrust pursuits and the, the coming crackdown on big tech. But should we be focusing on more of their backers? Private equity and asset management firms have great sway over the economy as well as over politicians. So are there any steps that you think would help to rein in the massive companies in these situations that back these multinational corporations that have outsized control over our nation or at least a significant effect on our economy? Or should we let the free market rule and let these asset managers do as they may? I'll leave that one up to you. If you have an opinion, I'd love to hear it. Throw it down in the comment section. Maybe we can start a conversation and I'll try to respond. I try to go through and respond to any comment that comes through. But if for some reason this one blows up and there are lots of comments, I may not be able to get to all of them. Let's be clear. I don't really think it's going to blow up. I think at the end of the day, this is a pretty boring topic that we're jumping into here first. It comes from the American Prospect. And these words will make people go away. Wall Street wins again on retirement savings. Wow, is that a sentence that is not going to necessarily thrill the most amount of people? But I think it's a very important topic that we need to at least address because this omnibus bill, it made it through with the backing of the Senate, barely making it through the House. Well, making it through the House on partisan lines. And there are a lot of different things that got put in. I read about a program that Bernie Sanders had wanted to put together to help fund certain organizations to start becoming a more collective workplace. I've seen a few other provisions that have made it through. But this is one that didn't necessarily slip under the radar because there's an article about it. But I think it's one that a lot of people are just going to look over and not necessarily care too much. So I'll read a quote from the article first just to really introduce the topic and kind of tell you where the author's coming from on this one. Quote, a bill package included in Congress's end-of-year omnibus legislation will allow the richest Americans to park more tax-shielded cash in private retirement funds in a win for giant asset managers like Vanguard and Fidelity. 
the SECURE Act 2.0, an expansion on tax breaks championed in 2019 by the House Ways and Means Committee Chair Richard Neal, Democrat of Massachusetts, has been sold as a way to address the retirement savings crisis. Today, about half of American workers do not have a retirement account, and many of those who do end up saving very little. According to researchers at Boston College, Americans have a retirement saving shortfall exceeding $7 trillion, end quote. So what I think is interesting here is rather than use the bill for its original purpose to prevent the government from shutting down, and what I mean is the whole idea of this omnibus bill, or at least the legislation that should be passed during this session, is to fund the government going forward. And then it's kind of turned into an omnibus bill that will fund the government until next September. So they're throwing in all these different provisions. So instead of just making a straight-line budget where they can tack on extra amendments, extra legislation when the House comes back on January 2nd, which, of course, they're not going to do because the Democrats want to get their last little bit of juice out of the lemon. They're only in control of the House for a few more days, so, of course, they're going to try to get as much passed as they can that benefits their agenda. But they're trying to cram through all of this. So rather than just cutting a streamlined budget, the Republicans decided that, no, we're going to go along with this massive spending. And now we have a whole bunch of different smaller bills that have been co-opted or changed or slid into the omnibus bill. So our Congress has basically decided once again to give a tax break to Wall Street and the population which creates... Sorry, actually, I need to rephrase that. The population that does not create the most original value. And what I mean by original value is... Don't get me wrong. They grease the wheels. They allow for people to send money back and forth to one another. If bankers and different asset managers didn't exist, then at the end of the day, they you couldn't go to your local bank. You couldn't say, hey, hold my money here, and you can loan it out to other people. Give me some interest while it's loaned out, so then when I come back, I still have my money. And at the same time, they're doing this process over and over again. So even though you may put in $100, you're not going to get your original 100 out, but you're still going to get a 100 USD out at some point. So I understand there's value to that system, allowing us to store money, not having to barter, not having to have items just in a single location that have value but could be stolen. And obviously, banking is an amazing thing. It's been around for centuries at this point. But at the end of the day, these mass asset managers, these Wall Street bankers, for the most part, do not create original value. Now, they may give money to other companies to create original value, but they themselves are not sitting down being artists, being engineers, creating something with their own hands, using their own ideas to create value through products, rather they create value by moving some buttons around on a screen. And obviously, it is way more complex than that. And there, of course, is a great deal of education and intellectual thought that goes into these areas. But at the end of the day, they are not doing the same jobs as the engineers that are taking us back to the moon, essentially, and plan to take us to Mars, or the engineers that are building new hydrogen battery cells. They're not doing the same thing. So I think it's always interesting that they seem to be some of the richest and Congress is once again giving them a tax break. So one part of the 
bill extends the age which people are required to withdraw from their retirement account up by a year and a half. So, you know, this this actually does sound great. You are not forced to take money out of a retirement, a tax-free retirement account that you have for an extra year and a half. That sounds amazing. You can gain more tax-free interest. You can put more money in. That Doesn't that sound great? But remember, that benefits the people that have the means to do it. And to be clear, I think that in premise alone, it, it does sound amazing. The people that are able to take advantage of this, this is great. This is less tax money going to the U.S. government. It's more money staying in the pocket of the American people. And even so, beyond just staying in the pocket, it's actually encouraging people to save more money. So if anything, that can help with the inflationary pressures that we're dealing with right now. But it does kind of disadvantage those at the bottom of the ladder because at the end of the day, they don't have extra money to put into the retirement account at that point. So how can they actually take advantage of this? And let's be clear, just because they don't get the benefit of being able to put that money away, it doesn't mean that this bill is terrible. I think there's a good lesson here. I think there's, at essence, it's a good thing. But it's not sweeping and wide enough to actually address the issue, which is help average-day blue-collar Americans that have shortfalls of $7 trillion when it comes to the amount of money they need saved for their retirement. So I just think that's a very interesting thing that we need to point out here. On the surface, this bill does something great. But when you kind of reach in, you understand a little bit more of the underlying thought process behind it, which sounds genuine. But then you also look at how it's applied. It's not necessarily benefiting everybody like the congressman. Uh, Let me go back to his name here as Mr. Richard Neal says or would argue to people that it is benefiting a certain segment of the population. I don't see that happening. So I just think it's something that definitely needs to be pointed out. And I said at the beginning, this is a boring article. Not many people like Wall Street. Not many people want to talk about their retirement. They want to focus on the here and now, or they're just worried about getting through this month rather than getting 40 years down the road. But it's something that we need to think about, address, And someday you will be that person who is about to retire. And someday these bills will affect you. So if you want to have an effect on the system, you have to listen to, if you want to actually have a real effect, you can run yourself and try to propose your own legislation and so on. But at the end of the day, if you don't like what Mr. Neal is doing, get him out, put someone in who will do what you want. Go to the town halls and talk to these people. You can't just sit on social media and broadcast what you want to these people. Though they do listen on social media, don't get me wrong. You're going to have more of an impact if you get a few friends together who agree with you. Go to a town hall and have a civil discussion with this person or even write them letters. If someone from our generation, I'm Gen Z, if someone from our generation writes a congressman or a senator a letter, it means it's most likely important. It's not frivolous. We don't just randomly do that. So if they see a letter come in and somehow they find out it's from our generation, they're going to know that you care a lot more than average Joe Schmo who's going to the local coffee shop. So let's jump on from this one. I got a little bit off base, a little bit further than I wanted to go, but I think I demonstrated or at least showed and talked about the points I wanted to get across. And I hope if you have any thoughts on them, throw them down in the comments. Love to hear what you have to say. Our next article comes from Common Dreams. 
how private equity gave rise to extreme inequality. I know, right? This, this headline's a little bit more exciting. And trust me, I have just as many opinions on this one. So during the time that we were locked inside our houses during the pandemic, the lockdowns, the largest shift of wealth in this country's history occurred. And obviously that could be some hyperbole. I don't necessarily have statistics going back to the 1800s and early 1900s. But I'll tell you now, in recent history, it is a the largest shift of wealth from one sector of the political of the economic pyramid to another. And so private equity and asset manager firms such as BlackRock, Blackstone, State Street, Vanguard, etc., they really took advantage of these low housing prices before there was a bubble that caused them to rise so rapidly. And also the stock prices when they dipped in March of the year of the to that, sorry, of 2019, the beginning of the pandemic. And they bought billions, I mean billions, in assets. So there's a quote that exemplifies this beautifully. Quote, today, the top 0.01% of the wealthiest people in America hold more of the country's total wealth than that same group did during the Gilded Age, a time of unrestrained financial speculation, but also of grinding poverty, corruption, and racial strife. As of 2019, assets under PE management, private uh, private equity, totaled more than 6.5 trillion. In 2022, PE accounted for 6.5% of GDP, directly employed nearly 12 million workers, and its suppliers employed an additional 7.5 million. By the middle of 2018, PE owned more companies than the number of businesses listed on all of the U.S. stock exchanges together. <sighs> Which is, can, can we just talk about that? Okay, I'll keep reading, but that's insane. Today, a big three of asset management firms, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street Global Advisors, together are the largest shareholder in almost 90% of the companies in the S&P 500 index, including Apple, Microsoft, ExxonMobil, and GE. As of 2020, they were also the largest shareholders in 40% of all publicly listed U.S. companies, employing 23.5 million people and with combined assets of over $15 trillion, an amount equivalent to more than three-quarters of GDP, end quote. So I know I just threw a lot at everyone here, but this is absolutely outrageous. These are three companies, asset-managing companies, that account for three-fourths, if they were to sell all their assets, of the U.S.'s GDP, while there is definitely some interesting framing that the author uses here it's still outrageous 15 trillion dollars 15 trillion dollars is tied up in three companies imagine what happens if one of these companies go down and oh, by the way they also have shares of one another so if one of these companies goes down there is a higher likelihood that the other ones go down and considering they have at least at least some ownership, or they at least the largest shareholder in 40% of all publicly listed companies, or 90% of companies on the S&P 500. 
that would have an outsized effect. So imagine what happened in 2008 with some of these banks, like with uh, Lehman Brothers. Imagine what would happen if one of these companies went down. When people say too big to fail, the, you know, the Lehman Brothers, they, they probably counted. And I don't necessarily agree with that logic. But these companies truly are too big to fail. They have their hands in too much of the economy. They have too many hands and too many cookie jars, if you like that analogy. And at the end of the day, if something bad happens to them, if, if BlackRock's ventures in China do not pan out the way they think they would and they lose a lot of money and then they have to start selling off assets and cause a panic, then maybe those companies go down. Guess what happens to all the companies that they are the largest shareholders in? Their value goes down because BlackRock has to sell their shares at the highest price they can in order to recoup some of the losses from some of their other assets. So I think this is extremely dangerous having this much money tied up in across the U.S. economy. So with the amount of ownership in major companies, they can practically decide the direction of the U.S. economy. So if they want to push for a green agenda like ESG, then they have the ears of, let me say it again, 90% of companies on the S&P 500 index, some of the largest companies in the United States that are publicly traded. And they have the ear, if not the outright sway, in the other 40% of publicly listed companies that they are the largest shareholders for. I know I keep repeating those two numbers, but that's because it's staggering. The amount of control that you can exert with this kind of influence, this kind of money tied up in these companies, you can practically tell the board or I say that you can tell upper management because they are on the boards because of their shareholder status. They can tell upper management, we think that you should be pursuing this agenda. We think that at the end of the day, this will help consumers and we want to be more consumer facing. They could frame it however they like, but they can, at the end of the day, control the direction of our economy. And I'm not saying they're doing it. I'm not saying that they're actually there saying that you have to do something, even though there is a lot of criticism around ESG scores. And even though it sounds great in theory, the fact that BlackRock is trying to push this on companies is the main issue when people take issue with ESG. But what I'm getting at is, at the end of the day, even if they're not exerting this control, they very well could. And imagine what happens if someone less benevolent than Larry Fink, the current leader of BlackRock, or any of the current leaders of State Street or Vanguard, if any of them, they change leaders and all of a sudden they're not so benevolent. I don't know if they're benevolent now, but what if they're even less so? What if they don't even pretend that they're trying to bully these companies into doing something? Then at the end of the day, they will have such a control over the U.S. economy that these companies will have to do it. They'll just say, okay, we'll take the money out of you, Sears, and we'll put it into Walmart, or we'll take our shares out of Target and put them into Walmart. So at the end of the day, this is an extreme amount of control in the hands of very few men and women, let's be clear. And I think it is extremely, extremely dangerous. And this is too much control for the, these little grubby companies. And I'm talking about antitrust action. So if you hear me ranting and you're saying, well, Alex, you're just complaining. What do you actually want to do? I want to have the government step in in some way, shape, or form. And at the end of the day, breaking up these companies will hurt the U.S. economy to some degree. And honestly, I don't like the government intervening if we don't have the option. But at the end of the day, 
it could be argued, and I think it is a tentative argument, but it could be argued that this is a national security threat because at the end of the day, these companies could guide the companies that work. So Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock, these three companies could guide other companies to work against American interests, like shipping their jobs over to a different country or doing joint ventures with a Chinese company that's stealing intellectual property. So in theory, there could be a national security argument that these companies are guiding companies in the U.S. away from the U.S. national interests. I think that gets extremely dangerous. I think that's a great overreach of power. But that's one of the ways that I could see a legitimate justification of stepping in from the government and saying, no, these companies need to get their hands out of all these other companies. But the thing is, just like when they broke up the oil companies and the steel monopolies back in the early 1900s, these companies could still, though they are separate, be run or at least coordinate to some degree like they do now and own shares in one another. So maybe the first step would say major asset managers can't hold shares in any of their competitors or their allies in the stock market. So that means... Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock couldn't own shares of each other. And then from there, see if that makes them a little bit more competitive towards one another. They're not necessarily as friendly. They stay in different rooms, different aisles. Maybe they diversify their portfolios because now Vanguard's taking a more measured approach when it comes to the steel industry rather than just working with BlackRock and State Street. I, I don't necessarily know for sure, and I'm kind of just ranting here and giving an idea, but I think it's something that we should definitely talk about. I think it's an interesting conversation, and at the end of the day, I think it's a necessary one. If we want to have an economy that is not ruled by people who live in New York and don't share a reality with the rest of Americans, and I'm not trying to say that, oh, they, they don't understand reality. I'm saying that New York reality is different than South Carolina reality. South Carolina reality is different than North Dakota reality. Not every single company across the United States, not every single individual needs to be run with a similar agenda in mind. And if you have centralized control of these companies, or at least centralized control of the values that certain companies should pursue, that trickles down to other smaller businesses. And that doesn't work for everybody. You need to have each company in each location deciding what's best for them and not following the rest of the herd and not being forced and pressured by bigger companies who are being forced and pressured by Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock. I know I've said their names a lot here. Sorry, that was a very long rant, but I think it's an important topic. And I'd love to hear comments, any thoughts you have. If you think I'm crazy, put down there, Alex, you're crazy. Uh, You could just put that down there. I would prefer if you say why you think I'm crazy so we could at least have a conversation, or I could hear a different opinion because maybe I'm being naive, maybe I'm being short-sighted. That is always a possibility. All right, our last article, we're going to go to some international news, comes from the Wall Street Journal. Japan to spend billions on U.S. Tomahawk missiles in military buildup. So Japan's currently in a situation where they're surrounded by an ever more aggressive China, a defensive Taiwan, a defensive South Korea, and a, once again, ever more scary and threatening Northern Korea. So Japan has been trying to change its position in the region. Quote, Japan earmarked more than 2 
billion to buy and deploy U.S. Tomahawk missiles on its naval destroyers, enough for several hundred of the weapons, as it seeks to deter China and North Korea. The spending is part of a record defense budget approved by the Cabinet Friday, equivalent to $51.4 billion for the fiscal year starting in April. Tokyo last week signaled one of its biggest military buildups since the end of World War II, with plans to nearly double defense spending over the next five years. About a half hour before the Tokyo cabinet meeting, North Korea fired two missiles in the direction of Japan. South Korean and Japanese officials said it was the latest of dozens of missile tests by Pyongyang this year. Around $10.6 billion has been allocated in Japan's latest budget for developing the ability to hit military facilities in enemy countries with missiles if an attack appears imminent, a shift in strategy intended to make neighboring countries think twice before starting an offensive, end quote. So for those of you who can't remember because you weren't alive, or for some reason just don't know, Tokyo, after World War II, was forced to give up most of their offensively capable military weapons. Uh, they weren't supposed to have a standing army, essentially. And, and though this is claimed to be, this buildup is claimed to be for defensive purposes, there is no doubt that this could be used in an offensive way in the future. They even say that it could strike, these missiles they're getting could strike enemies' bases if they believe attack is imminent meaning they would still be, even if they think that they're going to get attacked first, they will strike first, which is an offensive move. So there's no doubt here that Japan's moving away from the treaty that it was forced to sign after World War II. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. At the end of the day, if they need to build up to deter China and North Korea from trying anything funny, then, then, and they believe that's the way to go about it, then build up and try to make sure that North Korea and China don't do anything funny. Now, that may end up leading China and North Korea to also build up their military, their missiles more, because they're seeing Japan build up. So we'll see if this turns into an arms race long term. But what I think is very funny, and what we need to ask is, do we want a more powerful and offensively capable Japan? Is that a benefit in the region? And furthermore, should we allow them or should we just not bring down consequences if they break the treaty that they signed with us after World War II? And if we're creating a strategic alliance against China, I think there's an argument there for that. If we don't want to face down China and we want to leave it to Japan, we would have to say at the end of the day, Japan, you build up your military, be the threat in the region, be the power in the region. But then we have to ask the next question. So I know I'm laying out a lot of questions here, but I'm trying to lay out a logical thought process, which is if we're okay with Japan being the dominant power in the region, or at least trying to build up to be a dominant power in the region, are we okay with a Japan that takes over China if China attacks them and they come out on top? Because the alternative is China comes out on top, and we're not okay with that, we know. But if Japan builds up, and they're able to successfully defend their islands, and then they go on the offensive to ensure that China will never do it again, and they take China, are we okay with a Pacific region, Pacific Islands, Southeast Asian area that is controlled by the Japanese? We think they're our allies now, but we've seen an imperial and industrial 
and ever-expanding Japan in World War II. So that's something else that we need to consider. But at the end of the day, that's not necessarily a concern because, well, hey, they're buying our missiles, so you know, we can let them buy our missiles. If they want to use them how they want to use them, it's not a big deal. And I think that's the perspective of some people who are okay selling these Tomahawk missiles to Japan because at the end of the day, one of our largest imports, uh, sorry, exports here in the United States is still military equipment. So I'm going to read a, another quote from this article from the Wall Street Journal. Quote, some opposition lawmakers have said this creates a risk of Japan inadvertently becoming the aggressor in a war if it mistakenly ex- assesses an enemy's intentions. China fired missiles into the sea near some of China's southern islands in August as part of a show of military force around Taiwan. In October, North Korea shot a missile over Japan. The budget budget calls for $1.6 billion to buy Tomahawk missiles and $832 million for technical work and training to ensure Japan's Aegis destroyers can launch them. Deployment of the missiles is expected to begin after spring 2026, the Ministry of Defense said. The minister said it would negotiate with the U.S. over the price for the missiles, which typically costs the U.S. military around $1.6 million each but it declined to specify how many missiles it hoped to buy, end quote. So, like I said, at the end of the day, we need to evaluate whether we want a strong Japan, whether we're willing to back them or not, and if we do want a strong Japan, but we're not willing to necessarily back them, are they going to turn to some of our not-so-friendly opposition, such as Russia, who also makes military arms? Now, are they as good as the U.S.'s? That could... That could be argued, even though I would totally disagree and say no. So, of course, Japan's going to want to come to the U.S. first. But do we want to be the world armor? We're already pretending that we're the world's police. Do we want to be the largest armor in the world saying, oh, yeah, 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 you guys want to start a war? Oh, you want to go to war with China? Well, we have interest in making sure China doesn't rise to power. Let's sell some missiles to Japan. Why not? These are lots of questions that I'm raising here. I'm not giving good answers, and I'm not trying to imply that everything's broken. I'm just saying these are conversations that we need to have, and at the end of the day, I hope that these are thoughts that you have when you read some of these articles. Because just sitting there and taking it in is great. Just being informed is great. But having a healthy skepticism and actually thinking about beyond the ideas stated but the ideology, the thought process, the philosophy when it comes to our foreign policy, what you want to see in foreign policy, these kind of things, developing these skills is a, are great tools, and they're necessary in order to be a truly active citizen who is benefiting their society rather than hurting them by voting. Now, at the end of the day, if you're educated enough on just a few issues, if you just know there's one issue that you really like in a candidate and you're well-educated on that issue and you want to vote for that person because of it, Go right ahead. You do not have to know everything about foreign policy. But the more informed you can become, the better you're going to help your nation at the end of the day. Select a better leader who is you're proud of to have representing you on the world stage. Now, you know, enough higher than thou talk for me. Oh, go out there and vote, young timer. Make sure you really think about this hard. I know that probably came off as a rant, but I just... I see a lot of smart people in our generation who have these conversations, and I just want to make sure that we keep having them and there are more people like them because I, I've i started to see a little bit of hope again in our generation. I used to be very cynical and nihilistic 
about what our generation is going to do. And when I sit down and have conversations with some people in my generation, I have hope again because they're actually thinking about these issues in a big way. And even if they don't know they are, they still have very nuanced, well-thought-through positions, arguments, and they make for great conversations. So I have hope again. And I want to make sure that everybody hears this and knows that you can sit down and you can have a conversation with someone who you think may be smarter than you, more well-informed, and really suss out where you stand and then use that to inform who you vote for, how you go about your life, who that you choose to represent you and therefore change the possibly the course of this nation. So rant over. That was a lot there at the end. If you're still listening, then you don't mind my rants at this point. Thank you for listening. Now we're going to jump into our daily delight to leave you a little bit more positive. This one comes from the Animal Rescue Site. Here's what's going on or going to happen to your cat when it grows up with a bunny sibling, end quote. So once again, we have a cat making an appearance in the Daily Delight, but this time it's joined by a different species. Quote, the second clip was totally hilarious and endearing at the same time. It showed a cat hopping, almost similar to how bunnies do it. They must have been living together for a long time, as it looks like a result of keen observation. It's one of the possible scenarios that might happen if a cat and rabbit become pet siblings, end quote. And seeing this cat hop was definitely, definitely different, and it was a, it was a first-time thing for me. Quote, Heathson1970 commented, Identity crisis in the cutest way possible. The kid might have been confused for a moment, or it could also be because hopping looked interesting in its eyes. <laughs> End quote. So if you want to see this cute video or any of the photos, or you want to read any of today's articles, they'll be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. Make sure if you go down there that you also look at the Twitter handle, at your daily flip. Try to post something every once in a while. Keep people informed, as well as direct link to the podcast on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.